us. Lord, we do, we want to experience uh, your work in our lives, Lord. Lord, we certainly don't want to have just sort of a, a dry faith that uh, is absent of life. Lord, but we, we want to be tapped into the vine so that the life uh, just flows through us. We pray for uh, the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for hearts that are in tune to your guidance and your leading, and, and not even really just in matters of sin and staying away from them, but uh, even in areas of obedience and, and walking according to your leading and being used by you in the lives of others. Lord, and having lives really dedicated that you would be glorified. Lord, that's our prayer. That's what we desire, both as individuals, as families, Lord, and as a church. And so we're asking for, Lord, uh, just a clearer sense of your leading in our lives as we go forward from here. And today, Lord, as we, we dig into Psalm 5, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to pray uh, with the example of your servant David. And Lord, we do thank you. Uh, I think of just all the things that this man went through uh, in his life and how, like Joseph, I'm sure he could have said, Lord, uh, that these things were meant for evil by others, but you meant them for good. And Lord, what a blessing they have been to us. They are to us and so many others that name the name of Christ and follow you. So we thank you for it. We pray you would teach us once more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we're going to be in Psalm 5, so go ahead and start turning there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one of your own. Uh, you'll, you'll see some. They're kind of stuffed in the chairs in front of you there at the bottom of the chairs. Please feel free to take one of those and keep it as your own if you don't have one. And as you can see up on the screen, we're on page 419, if that helps you. Psalm 5, right about in the middle of your Bibles. And the Psalms, uh, next week, by the way, we go to the book of Titus. All right, we just took a little bit of break from the pastoral epistles to look at some of the Psalms. And so next week, we'll, we will be going to the book of Titus together. It's a small book. It's about three chapters. A lot of the material in the book of Titus is uh, repetitive in many ways as to what we saw in 1 Timothy. And so I expect we'll move through the book relatively quickly. Um, so I think you can read the whole book this week uh, without too much difficulty. I think there's a total of 46 verses in the whole book. So you can do it, right? All right, so why don't we all read through it? Who's agreeing? We're all agreeing? Okay, okay. And, you know, jot down a few little notes and some questions. Here's a game I like to play uh, years ago before I actually did this, was uh, I tried to guess the sermon title. Uh, it's stupid, but it, it, it entertained Greg. Uh, and so that's, that's all that matters, I guess. Um, anyhow, Psalm chapter 5 is where we are today. Uh, short psalm, again, is 12 verses uh, in the book of Psalm, it's neatly divided into four sections of three verses each, which I'll be pointing out to you. Uh, like Psalms 3 and Psalms 4, we know that this psalm was also penned by David because at the very beginning, there's a, a, a God-inspired, heavenly-inspired title there that mentions his name, so we know that he wrote it. And we know that he wrote it during a time of difficulty in his life, just like Psalms 3 and 4. Psalm 3, again, remember, is when he was running from his son Absalom, who had started a revolution, a coup. Uh, and obviously that was a very difficult time in the man's life. Well, Psalm 5 may not be from the same event, but it was also from a period of difficulty. If you just skim with me, look at verse 8 of Psalm 5. There we read these words. It says, Lead me, O Lord, in righteousness because of my enemies make your way straight before me. It speaks of his enemies and the problems that he was dealing with. Look at verse 9. There it says, There's no truth in their mouth. Their, inner, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. We see how they were lying against him, and they were using flattery, buttering him up, but their desire really was to destroy him. And so this is what David was dealing with. And Psalm 5 is David's discussion with God about those difficulties that he was facing. And I call it a discussion. It's what in the faith community we commonly would call prayer. But David would go before God and have a conversation essentially with God. He would go before God in prayer and he would lay out these difficulties that were ahead of him. Now, as you read through the scripture, 
particularly the, the Old Testament, well, the Bible, we'll call it that, what you begin to discover is there are some key disciplines that the person of faith is going to exercise in their walk with God. And some of them, they're pretty simple. You, you probably figure them out yourself. Studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God. That's a key discipline in the life of a follower of God. Prayer is a key discipline. Fellowshipping with other believers, giving, serving, using your gifts and your abilities in the lives of other people. All of those are key disciplines in a Christian walk or in a walk with God. And if a person has those five working in their lives, in their life, one life, if a person has them working in their life, it's a pretty safe bet that that person is doing pretty well with Jesus. If they're in his word, they're praying, they're giving, they're serving, they're fellowshipping with others, it's a pretty safe bet that that person is doing pretty well. Now, those disciplines, however, don't just naturally develop in the life of a believer. And so you become a Christian, you give your life to Christ, you recognize your need for a Savior, and that Christ alone can be that Savior, you automatically don't have a great quiet time. And you don't automatically have a great prayer life, and you don't automatically recognize the need to engage in community with others and fellowship with others. There are things that develop over time. You learn the importance of them, and in some cases you learn how to do them. You think about studying the word, for instance, and how to go about that. Well, here we have an example of how to pray that David establishes for us. It's a model for us of how we can pray, and particularly how we can pray when we find ourselves in a circumstance where the day ahead of us has difficult circumstances that we know are going to come our way. When you're looking at the difficult situations ahead and you stop everything you do, you don't just jump into your day, but you take time to pray before that difficult day that is ahead of you. Sometimes we don't know what the day is going to hold. You're just going about your life and some tragedy occurs. But other times we do know this is not going to be an easy day ahead of me. I'm dealing with this circumstance. I'm dealing with that. I have this problem over here. I have that. i got to be at that place, and I know it's going to be a problem when I get there. And you know, sometimes we know, man, this is going to be a tough one. Well, how do you approach that day? Well, what we see from the example of David is David approached it before he did anything else. He got alone with God, and he went before God in prayer. And so he establishes and sets for us a model of how to approach a day like that. And that is to invite God into the difficulties. That's a hard thing to do sometimes. Because, and for I've, here's my life. I don't know about you, but here's my life. My life is, look, I can solve this problem if I just buckle down and do it. And so I don't have time to slow down. I just got to get into it and do it. But David here models for us a guy that says, you know what? The most important thing I need to do is pull back and get alone with God. And so we might call it a prayer tutorial. I don't know, if, are you getting all these Facebook things about the master classes? Are you getting them, or is it just me that they believe needs to learn the stuff? <laughs> well, I'm getting all these things about TED Talks and how to sign up for a master class to learn how to cook or something like that. Uh, and I'm like, no, I've given up on the cooking. All right? I have a great wife. She takes care of that department here. But for some reason, I barbecue. I don't know why. Uh, it's what us men do, apparently. But anyhow, it's a prayer tutorial, and it's a class that's given by David. I said earlier there's four parts of the psalm. They are, if I get you, I'm sorry. I'm spitting a lot today. I apologize. You might want to slide over there um, here. Verses 1 through 3 is part 1, and that's where David directs his prayer to God. Verses 4 through 6 is where, this is interesting, David defines who his God is, and he doesn't do it for anybody else but himself, which is interesting. We'll talk about it. Verses 7 through 9 David actually prays, he makes his request to God, and then finally he closes it out with the statement of his confidence that God will be with him in the midst of his circumstances. I just think it's such a good outline of prayer uh, that David sets for us. And so let's read the psalm in its entirety. It says, now to the choir master for the flutes, it's a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now if those words sound vaguely familiar, we sang Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Now we sang it in the New King James Version, but 
nonetheless, what a great way to memorize the word of God is by putting these psalms to song. And so I was so grateful that we did that this morning. Verse 4, he goes on, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in, the mouth, in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with the tongue. Make them bear their guilt, he says in verse 10, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. Now earlier I mentioned it's a day ahead of you with troubling kind of prospects. Days of, a day of difficulty that you know is ahead of you. And again, you notice the circumstance that David is in. Look at verse 3 again here. He talks about it in the morning. Here's how David's going to address it or deal with it. He's not going to, as I said I tend to do, just jump in and I'll work hard and solve the problem. But in the morning, the first thing that he is going to do, he mentions here, he says, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And so this would be one of those morning psalms that we've talked about, some in the morning, some in the evening. And Psalm 5 shows David coming to the Lord first thing in the morning in order that he might receive the strength and joy that he knew he would need for the day that was going to be ahead of him. Again and again throughout the Psalms, we see David and others, but David in particular, making it a point to pray in the morning. Now, of course, that's not to say that David didn't pray in the afternoon and David didn't pray in the evening. A couple weeks ago, we saw an evening psalm. So we know he prayed at other times. But again and again and again, with regularity, you see David praying in the morning. A special emphasis, it seems, in the psalms of coming to God first thing in the morning to draw near to him. Like the first fruits of our giving. It's a way to honor God with the first fruits of our time. And I think it also serves the purpose of setting the tone for the entire day that we hope will be dedicated to him. And so David would come to God in the morning. Now, I'm sure some of us are thinking, but I'm not a morning person. All right, the ladies apparently, uh, according to my voice. But I'm sure some are thinking, I'm not a morning person, or I'm too busy, or I got to you know, get to this place or that place. I can't. May I just say, it may be that you're not a morning person, because you're a too-late-to-go-to-bed person. It may simply mean that. And so go to bed a little bit earlier, and you may suddenly find, hey, I am a morning person. Now that some of you think I'm the devil, <laughs> I'll just say, David, that's what David did. In the morning, he would get up, and he would spend time with the Lord, and Psalm 5 is an example of that. And as we see, again, it begins with the title. It says, To the Choir Master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Now, if you go back and you look at the title of Psalm 4, a couple pages over, you see that particular psalm was accompanied with the stringed instruments. If you look at Psalm uh, 6, the next one we're going to, that also was accompanied with the stringed instruments. There was a variety to their worship. And so some were with flutes and some were with horns and some were with stringed instruments and some were according to this tone. A tune, and somewhere according to that one, we see that as we make our way through. But there was a variety to the style of the people's worship. David beginning, this one for the flute in the background. Do we have any, what are they called, flautist? Is that right? Any flautist? We're looking to get you up on the team here. No? Okay. Well, then, it's not going to happen. I believe Joe could do it. <laughs> Joe, that's our challenge to you, is to learn the flute this year. David says this, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. Again, this is the first section of this particular psalm. And here's where David is directing his prayer to God. And so as you are thinking about your prayer life and growing in your prayer life, the first thing that I think we can take away from this is David is not just thinking about things. Sometimes we think about a lot of things and we say, I was praying all day. No, you were just thinking about those things. David here comes before God. Sometimes we just cry out sort of in exasperation to anything out there that'll hear. David doesn't do that. David comes to God. He's crying out to the God of the heavens. He's directing his words. He says it in verse 2, to my king and my God. David had a relationship with God. And that's demonstrated by his times of interaction that we have recorded for us in the Psalms and in, in the narratives of the scripture. God wasn't some distant force to David. David knew him. And David interacted with him in prayer. God was someone that David personally had a relationship with. And this is why his prayer life is so helpful for us as a model. Because it was emphasized, it emphasized this idea of relationship. You remember in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples, the apostles, when Jesus' disciples came to him on one particular occasion, Jesus had been off praying. And Jesus' prayer times, they noticed, they were with him at times, and other times they just observed, they were different than his, their prayer times. He, he seemed to really enter into God's presence when he prayed in a way that they felt lacked in their own lives. And so they go to Jesus and they say to him, teach us to pray even as you pray. Jesus was, this is what Luke 11 says. This is where we get that prayer that we call it the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Now, Luke 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. The Matthew passage, Jesus responds, he does it in Luke as well, but nonetheless, in the Matthew passage, he responds, he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And many of you could probably continue the prayer all the way through. Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, look, if you want to pray, just start rattling off rote, mind-numbing prayers, and you'll be good. I remember when I, I used to go to a, a church situation, and they would, I, would, I could get forgiveness if I went and I prayed 10 of these prayers and 5 of those prayers. And the way, unfortunately, the way my school did it, I went to a Catholic school. I wasn't supposed to tell you. Sorry. I went to a school of another religious background, and they, we would go at lunchtime, and when you were done, you could go out to recess, which was the most important part of my day uh, when I went. I was an A student in recess. And so I would just rattle through as quickly as I could these prayers. And they meant nothing to me, unfortunately. Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, memorize the words, get them out as quickly as you can, and then get out to recess. He says, when you pray, you say, our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. And he, he goes on from there, and we could spend some time with that, but his point is, come reverently to your Father. Come reverently to the one you have a relationship with. David understood that, and David models that for us in his prayer. He doesn't just throw prayers up into the sky. He comes before a God that he has a relationship with, and he makes his request known. His words, again, they're in Psalm 1 and 2, 5, verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. So he calls for God to do three things in his life. Give ear to my words, consider my groaning, and give attention to the sound of my cry. This is an example in the Psalms or in Hebrew poetry. It's an example of what's called parallelism. You can figure it out just from the meaning of the, what the English meaning of the word is. But it's where you say the same thing in multiple, diff, multiple ways slightly different. Obviously, you can look at it. You don't need to know much about it here. What he's saying is, God, hear my prayer. And then he goes on and he says, uh, give ear to my words, consider my groaning. So he's saying, God, hear my prayer, which consists of words, but of groanings as well, of not words, if you will. Somebody said this, and I thought it was of well. His prayer consists of spoken words and of broken words. 
Now, the ESV uses, that's what I'm reading here, and you have in the, your Bibles there in front of you. The ESV, English Standard Version, it uses the word groaning. If you happen to have the NIV, you'll see it uses the word lament. Consider my lament. The New American Standard, it uses the word sighing. Consider my sighing here. I really like this one. This is from God's Word translation, uh, which is like the Living Bible, if you're familiar with that one. And this translated that last word as, consider my innermost thoughts. Now, it's, it's slightly different in each of those different versions because it's a word that is only used twice in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language Old Testament. The other time that it's used is in Psalm 39, Psalm 39, verse 3. And there it's translated as mused or musings. And so in Psalm 39, it says, My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. And what you see there, and I'm showing it to you, is because there's sort of a contrast between speaking, then I spoke with my tongue, and this musing that is going on. And so the idea of the word seems to be one of thoughts that cannot be formulated into words. Have you ever found yourself in that sort of a situation where you just, you can't even express what you want to express that's on your heart? It's amusing. It's a groaning. David is saying, Lord, give ear to my words. And, and I think he's saying this, and make sense of my groaning. Those things that I can't even make sense of, God, I'm just going to kind of lay them there before you. Everything that's on my heart, believing that you can make sense of them. I think David here, he understands what Paul would write about a thousand years later, because it's the same God that's at work. And Paul would say this, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there are some that understand Romans chapter 8, verse 26, to be speaking of tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, which Paul talks about uh, in other places in his epistles. And while I certainly believe that the spiritual gift of tongues is for today, I don't think the spiritual gift of tongues is for everyone today. I think Paul teaches that. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all prophecy, prophesy? No. And so I don't think everybody speaks in tongues, but I do think that some do. I point that out because I don't want you to walk away thinking Greg doesn't think people can speak in, with the spiritual gift of tongues. I do believe you can. I don't think, though, that's what Paul's talking about here, a special prayer language that some believers have. Rather, I think what Paul is simply saying, and David is talking about as well, are those times when we find it impossible to put into words that which resides in the deepest places of our hearts. And here at the outset, David, he's petitioning God to hear not only the words that he can formulate, but even those that he can't. What a gift to know that the Holy Spirit can interpret and make sense of our innermost thoughts, even when we can't do so. Well, David goes on. He says in verse 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Now, that's written in such a way that I think we might miss it in some of our English translations. And I, I notice none of the English translations really uh, emphasize what should be emphasized or could be emphasized. And so here's how it could be worded, where at the end it says, to you do I pray. It could be worded this way, to you and to you only do I pray. And most of the English translations don't go that direction. But the point is where David has take, is taking this difficult day that is ahead of him, so difficult that it's weighing on him so heavily that there are, there are even aspects of it he can't put into words. And David is saying, I'm going to go one place and one place only with this. And I'm going to go to you and to you alone. To you and to you alone do I pray. David prayed to God. Similar to how we began, this idea of David had a relationship with God. He came to him as his father. David, here he comes, and he meets with God in prayer. And I think this is an essential aspect to the growth of our prayer lives. It's not that we're just rattling through a list, not that we're just rambling off prayers that really don't mean anything to us, but that we're coming into the presence of God, we're conscious of his presence as we pray, and we leave that place knowing we have met with him. 
The result is that time of prayer. It changes us. It prepares us. It readies us. One of the great prayer warriors of the modern Christian movement, and by that I mean the last hundred years or so, was a fellow by the name of R.A. Torrey. Uh, if any of you have done any reading on prayer, you've probably come across books by, by R.A. Torrey and E.M. Bounds, two individuals that were, uh, I don't know, skilled, gifted, what have you, and wrote deeply about prayer and have been so helpful to so many that have read their works. Well, R.A. Torrey, he wrote a book called How to Pray, pretty straightforward, and he said this. This is what he, how he commented on this idea of coming to God in prayer without really coming into God's presence. This is what he said. He says, in order that a prayer should be really unto God, there must be a definite and conscious approach to God when we pray. We must have a definite and vivid realization that God is bending over us, listening as we pray. And if that's not the sense of what you're getting when you pray, then I would, I would like to encourage you, slow down a bit and get that sense. Get the sense that you're actually coming into God's presence and you're meeting with him as opposed to just jumping in and throwing out all your requests that you have there and leaving them there. Because you could do that with a, a, an assistant, right? The secretary that works for the big boss. You could, could you pass this list on to him for me, will you? But the benefit of prayer is more so just sitting with God. It's not even what we're saying. It's sitting in his presence and allowing him to envelop you and to work in your life and to and sometimes give you wisdom and give you direction and speak into your heart and all that stuff. But other times, just to give you a sense of, I'm going to be with you, whatever you're dealing with today. And you walk away like, I don't know what I'm dealing with today, but I know he's going with me. And it's very comforting. And there's a lot of peace that can come from that. Prayer was so effective in David's life because his times of prayer were focused on actually being in the presence of God. I think that's one of the lessons we can take from his model. Draw near to God in prayer. Draw near to God in prayer. Well, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, there's a, there's a bunch of different ver variations of verse 3 depending on the version that you happen to be reading. The English Standard, I just I read to you about preparing a sacrifice and so on. The King James Version, the New King James Version, here's how verse 3 is worded. It says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. That word look up, you get the sense of, like, I'm going to look up and I'm going to pray to God. The, the word... Uh, really, it's, it's translated in other versions as watch, or you might translate it as look for. And so the idea is not so much I'm going to look up to heaven and pray, which I guess you could do if you want to, but the idea is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to look for your answer and how you're going to work and how you're going to direct. That's why it talks about and watch in some of the other versions that are there. And so we could say this, there are three steps that David takes in prayer. We're looking at this model, three steps, three ways for preparing himself for the day ahead. Number one is he directs himself to God. I talked about that. Number two is he is ordering his thoughts and his word. And then number three, he's, as the English standard, it goes on to say, he's preparing a sacrifice, he's making his request. Number three is going to be he's going to watch and he's going to look. Let's go back and look at that second one there. So first, he directs himself to God. Number two, David does this uh, by ordering his thoughts in his word. Verse three in the English standard, it says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice. The King James uses the word prayer. Other, other versions use the word request. All right, well, what is it? Is it prepare, is it prepare a request, a uh, a prayer request, or is it a sacrifice of some sorts? Well, the word that is used, which is translated either as prepare or direct, it means this, to set out in order, to arrange, to set in rows. And so that's the word that David uses there. It's the same word that is used to describe what the priest would do. 
when they would prepare an offering and they would lay it on the fire or when they would go into the temple one day a week and they would replace the showbread that was inside the temple on the table of the showbread. They would lay it out. They would prepare the showbread. That's the word that is used there. And so it's translated in the English Standard Version as uh, prepare a sacrifice. Some of the other versions there, they write it a little bit differently, direct my prayer, order my prayer. And so, again, which one is it? Well, do you understand kind of the, how I came, or they came to this slight difference here? It's because there's a little bit of, okay, what's this word trying to say? What's it trying to communicate? Spurgeon, he said this. Some of you know him. He's dead. He's not a friend. Like, uh, but he said, the word is used for the laying in order of the wood and the pieces of the offering upon the, off, uh, the altar. And so then what is David trying to say? I think what David is trying to say is just as the priest laid out that morning sacrifice and just as he laid out that weekly showbread, David was now, as carefully as he could, going to lay out his prayer before God, even though there were aspects of it he couldn't put into words. David says he'll direct his prayer. Notice he doesn't say, I'll direct the Lord. Lord, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do, and if you could have it done by five, that would be great. David is saying he's going to lay these things out there. He's going to direct them before the Lord to do, for the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do. Thirdly, David says in verse 3, and then I will watch. Again, to look for, not to look up to. David was going to watch for the way in which God was going to intervene in his circumstances in response to his prayer. To say it another way, David is entrusting himself now to the Lord. He said, all right, Lord, I gave it to you, and now I'm just going to go with my day trusting that you're going to do what you need to do here. He brought his request before God, and then he left them there before God. And he was going to watch and see what God would do. And in that, he models for us again what to do not only when we pray, but after we pray. David watched for the Lord to work. Before we pray, we should direct our prayer to God, recognizing that we're coming into his presence. And then after we pray, we need to look with expectancy, truly believing that God has heard our prayers and that God is going to answer. And so if we follow David's pattern, we're going to begin in the morning. We come back to that, sorry, for those that don't like that. But we're going to begin in the morning with steps one and two, and then we're going to spend the rest of our day in step three, which again is watching for what the Lord is going to do, entrusting ourselves. David here, in saying he's going to watch for these things, he's expressing his extreme confidence in God. And that's important in light of the circumstances he's facing, remember? Overwhelming circumstances that were in front of him. David knows that God is greater than those circumstances that he's facing. And so he entrusts himself and his concerns to God. Now we go on to verse 4, which is the second section. So part 1 of Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3, David directs his prayer to God. Part 2 is now David defines who God is in his life. And what I mean by that is this, that David, he's aware of his enemies. They're right here. I woke up thinking about them today. I know what the day ahead of me is going to hold for me, and I'm going to have to deal with them. And in the consciousness of his enemies... David calls to mind who his God is. That's what I mean when I say he defines the God whom he served. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. He says, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful not, shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Notice how verse 4 begins. It begins with the word for. Some versions use the word because. And this is the reason why David could pray a prayer in verses one, two, 1 and 2 and then pull back and watch for God to answer that prayer in verse 3. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil might not dwell in you. He says in verse 5, The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful Man, now there's, there's certainly some strong language here. We have words like hate, abhors, destroy. You're thinking, this is how God feels about things? He hates, he abhors, he, he wants to destroy. I'm going to come back to that in a moment here. 
But first notice, as David is aware of his enemies, his confidence in prayer is strengthened by remembering who God is, by remembering the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And so David is watching expectantly for God to intervene on his behalf because he knows what God is like. God is holy. God is righteous. And those that were coming against him were unholy and wicked. And because David knows who God is and what God is like, he knows how God is going to respond to their unholiness and their wickedness. Now, he may not know the specifics, the specific way in which God is going to act, but he knows that, But knowing the character of God as he does, he knows that God is going to act in one way or the other. And that's what he's pulling back and looking for. And he's watching. God's going to remedy this circumstance, and I'm just going to pull back, and I'm going to look for him to do it. God's character. Well, he begins by telling us what God's character is by telling us what it's not. And he says he's not a God who delights in wickedness. Because the Lord is the sort of God that he is, David knows what he can be praying for. Again, I use this example a lot. I'm not sure why, but I do. That we know that God is against bank robberies. Would we all agree with that? We know that he is. And so we can't pull up to a bank and have a prayer meeting that he'll bless our next bank heist or whatever because God's not in that prayer. But because we know that God is a God of love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, we can continually and confidently pray that God would create those character traits in our hearts. Can we? Can we? And we don't have to wonder, I wonder if this is according to God's will. You know it is, because that's who God is. He's loving, kind, merciful, gentle, and so on and so forth. And he wants that created in each of us. Are you with me on that? So he, now let me come back to those statements where it says God hates and the things that he abhors and how certain things are going to be and people are going to be destroyed. We hear a lot, and I'm glad we do because it's 100% true, we hear a lot about the love of God. And many conclude because God is loving and because God is love, as Paul even defines it that way, God is love, many conclude that because God is love, therefore he must overlook wickedness and sin. That a truly loving God would just, just let him go. They didn't mean it, and you can let him go. Well, the scripture says not so. The scripture says that God is 100% loving, but God is 100% holy. And the one can't be sacrificed for the other. God's holiness, therefore, requires that he discipline sin or punish sin and the sinners that commit that sin. That's the testimony of Scripture, is that God will deal with and consequences will be meted out for those that engage in sin. Now, whether that be, and I'll use some of the words that David's going to use to describe his enemies, whether that be because they're liars or they're murderers, that's what the word bloodthirsty means, or that they're deceivers, or the many other myriad of sins that are highlighted and, and named in the scriptures, God must deal with that because he's holy, because he's righteous. God is loving. We know that too. And the scripture is abundantly clear on that reality. And so how then does a loving God who longs to show mercy, who longs to show forgiveness, how does a loving God deal with the problem of sin that has to be dealt with? And the answer is revealed partially in the Old Testament, if you had eyes to see it, but it's 100% clear in the New. The answer is the cross of Christ. It's at the cross of Christ, and it's the whole reason for the cross, because sin must be punished, but God is a merciful God that does, doesn't want separation from sinners. And so we read this verse, and I'm sure you know it. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that's the punishment part, but have eternal life. We sing a chorus here, justice and mercy. They meet in one place, and that's at the cross of Christ. And so it says God hates, God abhors, God will destroy, absolutely. But there is a place where a person can be forgiven, and that's the cross of Christ. And so David knows that sin will be judged, but notice what he says in verse 7. He says, but I, the contrast, remember that's 
we rhyme words in Western poetry, roses are red, violets are blue, and so on. Uh, they rhyme ideas, or the opposite of that, they contrast ideas. It's part of Hebrew poetry. And so David says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. He began this third section with the words, but I. Now, look back at verse 4 for a moment. There he said, God does not delight in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with him. Here, he says, but I will enter your house. In, the con in contrast to his wicked adversaries, David has instant access into the presence of God. And I think it's important to understand, it's not because God was on David's side. It's because David was on God's side. And because David was on God's side, he has instant access into the presence of God. Look at verse 8. He says there, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. He says, make straight, make way straight, make your way straight before me. Your way straight. David was confident that God was going to take up his cause because the cause that David was fighting was God's cause. And that's where his confidence came from. And so again, he says in seven, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house and I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Now notice, please, David aligns his way with God. And you can walk away saying, well, if I live a good life, then God will be with me. Notice what David says in verse seven. He refers to the abundance of your steadfast love because of the abundance of your steadfast love I will enter your house. That, that word steadfast love, I'm not sure I didn't check this, but that it, it means mercy, essentially, here. And so David is saying, but through, the, through your mercy, I will enter your house. That's where David's confidence ultimately comes from. Not that I've necessarily banged it out of the park on every standard that God has for my life. Ultimately, his confidence comes from the mercy and the grace of God. Look at verse 7 again. David, he, he prepares to make his request based on the basis of God's grace, verse 7, through the abundance of your steadfast love. But then as you go on in verse 7, he talks about bowing down to God's holy temple in fear. There's this perfect balance between God's going to pour out his mercy on me, he's going to show his grace for me, he's going to welcome me into his presence, and he's not my best buddy. And we're not pals and chums. There's a holy fear as well. And the two somehow perfectly come together. There's a warm welcome, which I'm so glad about in my personal walk with the Lord. But there's also this reverential fear at the same time, which I think sometimes we forget. Because you're coming into the presence of the creator God. And we sometimes forget that. It's the mystery of our walks with God. Well, David's going to get through his request for his adversaries. Well, this is what I, I need you to do. That's verse 10. But look at what he does first here in verse uh, 8. He prays for himself. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. I think this is like the Old Testament way of saying what we read in the New Testament, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Now, again, remember the context. David's begun his day in prayer. He's laid out all of his worries and his concerns of the day. He's reminded himself of who God is, and that knowledge in the context of his difficulties, like these are my enemies, but this is who God is, and I'm on God's side, and so on. And now, in so many words, he is simply saying, God, direct my steps from here. I got all these problems that are in front of me. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to respond to them. I know you know, God, direct my steps. Help me know which way I should go. He says, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Lord, make straight my way before you. Notice, before David even asks for God to remove his difficulties, he asks for grace to, to respond to those difficulties. And I think that's so significant because some of your difficulties aren't going away. The, the, amen. They're going to stay with you. You think, God, just take them away and everything will be good. And God will say, well, how about I change you in the midst of those difficulties so that you respond to those difficulties in a way you would have never imagined responding before? How about that? I'm not, I don't want to sound like God's being a jerk, um, but 
he's thinking outside of the box that you're thinking in or that I'm thinking in. David here, he wants to walk according to God's righteousness. And he asks God to help him do that. I love this about David because this reflects David's continual reliance on God as he goes about a day, his day. Again, I already said in the beginning, I think it's so important to set the tone for your day by taking time in the morning, however short that might be, but taking some time in the morning here. But even if you do that, you could be great sitting in your little chair tucked off in your little corner, but then when you get up and you go and you start interacting with other people and you get to your place of business, that you could lose all that. David is continually relying on God for the rest of the day that is ahead of him. He's saying, Lord, direct my path throughout the day. Direct the place I go. Lead me in your righteousness. That speaks of David's humility. It speaks of David's dependence upon God. He says in verse 9, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now he goes on in verse 10, and here's his prayer for them. And it's also a statement of confidence that God's going to intervene. He says in verse 10, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for you for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. David's prayer in verse 10 is that God would do what David previously established that God does. That was back in verses 4 through 6, particularly in verses 5 through 6. Remember back there, he spoke about the way in which God destroys the liar and the murderer and the one that deceives and how the proud boaster couldn't stand in his presence. David established all of those things. That's back when he said, God, this is who you are. And he established all that. Here now in verse 10, what David is doing, his prayer, is for the Lord to cast out the enemy, to let them fall as a result of their own counsels. Notice what he does, what he's doing. David is taking what he knows about God. And how do we know things about God? Through the word of God. David is taking what he knows about God from the word of God, and he's applying that to his prayer life. He's praying, essentially, the word of God. He's taking what he knows about God and turning those statements around into prayers to God. And you, you can't go wrong with that because you're, it's based on the truth of God's word. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Notice again, he begins with the word but, that contrasting of ideas I've been talking about. While God is dealing with his enemies in judgment, David is looking to God and anyone else that looks to God for refuge here as the reason to rejoice and to sing songs of praise. Consider the impact of this as, as these words are closing uh, the psalm out for David. David came, I'm overwhelmed, the day ahead of me. You can imagine you've been in there in circumstances like that, and the stress of all of it, and your mind is racing, and you don't know how you're going to get through it. He ends by talking about God being his refuge and changing what's on his heart to a song of praise. And joy. David met with God for a time of prayer, and he came out of that time of prayer different. Prayer is not a waste of time. I used to think it was a waste of time in so many ways. I'm trying to be honest with you here. Like when I read the Bible, I read a chapter or two chapters or three chapters, whatever it might be. Prayer, what can I check off? Nothing. And you would think of it as like I need to do something. Prayer is doing something. And it's spending that time with God. And David was changed from when he entered to when he left his time of prayer. Now he's exiting that time of prayer with calls for songs of rejoicing and praise in the knowledge that God is his refuge. He says in verse 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And perhaps that's the greatest blessing of all. That word favor there, it's a word often translated as grace. It's God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor in our lives. David says that, that God, oh, oh Lord, he says, you cover him with favor as with a shield. So again, David doesn't know exactly when God's going to work in this day, how God is going to work in this day, but he's absolutely certain that God will work in this day. 
God's going to bless the righteous. And so he closes the psalm with that strong, confident assertion. He says, for you bless the righteous, for you cover with, the, with favor as with a shield. David ends his prayer knowing that God's going to work in his life. And what's David's responsibility? Well, it's simply to walk in God's path. That day, looking around, waiting for God to do what God's going to do. David laid it all there before God. God, you're going to have to do what you're going to do and work, and I'm just going to walk with you as I go from here. And that's our responsibility as well. So I encourage you, if you find you're not much of a prayer, set some time apart in your day. Don't always do you. You can do it while you're driving. A lot of us are doing it while you're driving. Um, but you can do it while you're driving. Or, you know, while you're cooking or while you're busy with something else. But I think it's important to just do it when you're doing nothing else. And spend that time with the Lord. Practice coming into his presence. When your mind starts to drift, and bring it back to where it needs to be, conscious of his presence. Let your burden on, on your heart, lay it there before the Lord. Leave it there before the Lord. And watch the Lord do a changing work in your prayer life. Not that you're necessarily going to become the, you're going to be the most effective prayer in the church and they're going to write books about you. It's not even about that. It's just about the benefit that you will begin to experience when you have the peace of God overwhelm and envelop you in your life. And I think that's what, I think that's what we all want, isn't it? So let's be people that pray. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of prayer. We want to thank you that just Humble individuals like ourselves can have an audience with the creator of all the universe. And Lord, that you welcome us into your presence. Lord, I pray with the disciples, would you teach us to pray? Lord, we want to be more effective in our prayer lives, not just for changing the world, but that our hearts would be changed. And Lord, we believe that in that, you would be honored, really, even in that. And that's our goal. That's our desire. So, Lord, I, I pray you would bless Psalm 5 in the lives of this church and our study of it this morning. And I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.